to part five of the histories by publius cornelius testus this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by anna simon the histories by publius cornelius testus translated by alfred john church and william jackson broadrip book two march to august a d sixty nine part two after this speech from Mucianus, the other officers crowded round Vespasian with fresh confidence, encouraging him and reminding him of the responses of prophets and the movements of the heavenly bodies. Nor was Vespasian proof against this superstition, for afterwards, when master of the world, he openly retained one Seleucus, an astrologer, to direct his counsels and to foretell the future. All omens now recurred to his thoughts. A cypress tree of remarkable height on his estate had suddenly fallen, and rising again the following day on the very same spot, had flourished with majestic beauty and even broader shade. This, as the Heraspaces agreed, was an omen of brilliant success, and the highest distinction seemed prophesied to Vespasian in early youth. At first, however, the honours of a triumph, his consulate, and the glory of his victories in Judea, appear to have justified the truth of the omen. When he had won these distinctions, he began to believe that it portended the imperial power. Between Judea and Syria is Mount Carmel. This is the name both of the mountain and the deity. They have no image of the god nor any temple. The tradition of antiquity recognizes only an altar and its sacred association. While Vespasian was there offering sacrifice and pondering his secret hopes, Basilidus, the priest, after repeated inspections of the entrails, said to him, Whatever be your purposes, Vespasian, whether you think of building a house, of enlarging your estate, or augmenting the number of your slaves, there is given you a vast habitation, boundless territory, a multitude of men. These obscure intimations popular rumour had at once caught up, and now began to interpret. Nothing was more talked about by the common people. In Vespasian's presence the topic was more frequently discussed, because to the aspirant himself men have more to say. With purposes no longer doubtful, they parted, Messianus for Antioch, Vespasian for Caesarea. These cities are the capitals of Syria and Judea, respectively. The initiative in transferring the empire to Vespasian was taken at Alexandria under the prompt direction of Tiberius Alexander, who, on the 1st of July, made the legions swear allegiance to him. That day was ever after celebrated as the first of his reign, though the army of Judea on July the third took the oath to Vespasian in person with such eager alacrity that they would not wait for the return of his son Titus, who was then on his way back from Syria, acting as the medium between Messianus and his father for the communication of their plans. All this was done by the impulsive action of the soldiers without the preliminary of a formal harangue or any concentration of the legions. While they were seeking a suitable time and place, and for that which in such an affair is the great difficulty, the first man to speak, while hope, fear, the chances of success or of disaster were present to their minds, one day, on Vespasian quitting his chamber, a few soldiers who stood near, in the usual form in which they would salute their legate, suddenly saluted him as emperor. Then all the rest hurried up, called him Caesar and Augustus, and heaped on him all the titles of imperial rank. Their minds had passed from apprehension to confidence of success. 
In Vespasian there appeared no sign of elation or arrogance, or of any change rising from his changed fortunes. As soon as he had dispelled the mist with which so astonishing a vicissitude had clouded his vision, he addressed the troops in a soldier-like style, and listened to the joyful intelligence that came pouring in from all quarters. This was the very opportunity for which Mucianus had been waiting. He now at once administered to the eager soldiers the oath of allegiance to Vespasian. Then he entered the theatre at Antioch, where it is customary for the citizens to hold their public deliberations, and as they crowded together with profuse expressions of flattery, he addressed them. He could speak Greek with considerable grace, and in all that he did and said he had the art of displaying himself to advantage. Nothing excited the provincials and the army so much as the assertion of Mucianus that Vitellius had determined to remove the legions of Germany to Syria to an easy and lucrative service, while the armies of Syria were to have given them, in exchange, the encampments of Germany, with their inclement climate and their harassing toils. On the one hand, the provincials from long use felt a pleasure in the companionship of the soldiers, with whom many of them were connected by friendship or relationship. On the other, the soldiers, from the long duration of their service, loved the well-known and familiar camp as a home. Before the 15th of July, the whole of Syria had adopted the same alliance. There joined him, each with his entire kingdom, Sohamus, who had no contemptible army, and Antiochus, who possessed vast ancestral wealth, and was the richest of all the subject kings. Before long Agrippa, who had been summoned from the capital by secret dispatches from his friends, while as yet Vitellius knew nothing, was crossing the sea with all speed. Queen Berenice, too, who was then in the prime of youth and beauty, and who had charmed even the old Vespasian by the splendour of her presence, promoted his cause with equal zeal. All the provinces washed by the sea, as far as Asia and Achaea, and the whole expanse of country inland towards Pontus and Armenia, took the oath of allegiance. The legates, however, of these provinces were without troops, Cappadocia, as yet, having had no legions assigned to it. A council was held at Berytus to deliberate on the general conduct of the war. Thither came Messianus with the legates and tribunes and all the most distinguished centurions and soldiers, and thither also the picked troops of the army of Judea. Such a vast assemblage of cavalry and infantry, and the pomp of the kings that strove to rival each other in magnificence, presented an appearance of imperial splendour. The first business of the campaign was to levy troops and recall the veterans to service. The strong cities were set apart for the manufacture of arms. At Antioch gold and silver money was coined, everything being vigorously carried on in its appointed place by properly qualified agents. Vespasian himself went everywhere, urged to exertion, encouraged the industrious by praise, and with the indolent used the stimulus of example rather than of compulsion, and chose to be blind to the faults rather than to the merits of his friends. Many among them he distinguished with prefectures and governments, and several with the honours of senatorial rank. All these were men of eminence, who soon reached the highest positions. In some cases good fortune served instead of merit. Of a donative to the troops, Mucianus, in his first speech, had held out only moderate hopes, and even Vespasian offered no more in the civil war than others had done in times of peace, thus making a noble stand against all bribery of the soldiery and possessing in consequence a better army. Envoys were sent to Parsia and Armenia, and precautions were taken that, when the legions were engaged in the civil war, the country in their rear might not be exposed to attack. It was arranged that Titus should pursue the war in Judea, while Vespasian should secure the passes into Egypt. 
To cope with Vitellius, a portion of the army, the generalship of Mucianus, the prestige of Vespasian's name, and the destiny before which all difficulties vanished, seemed sufficient. To all the armies and legates letters were dispatched, and instructions were given to them that they were to attach the praetorians who hated Vitellius by the inducement of renewed military service. Mucianus, who acted more as a colleague than as a servant of the emperor, moved on with some light-armed troops, not indeed at a tardy pace, so as to give the appearance of delay, yet not with extraordinary speed. Thus he allowed rumour to gather fresh strength by distance, well aware that his force was but small, and that exaggerated notions are formed about what is not seen. Behind him, however, came in a vast body the Sixth Legion and thirteen thousand veterans. He had given directions that the fleet from the Pontus should be brought up to Byzantium, not having yet made up his mind whether, avoiding Musia, he should move on Derechium with his infantry and cavalry, and at the same time blockade the sea on the side of Italy with his ships of war, thus leaving Asia and Achaea safe in his rear, which, being bare of troops, would be left at the mercy of Vitellius unless they were occupied with proper garrisons. And thus, too, Vitellius himself, finding Brundisium, Tarentum, and the shores of Calabria and Lucania menaced by hostile fleets, would be in utter perplexity as to which part of Italy he should protect. Thus the provinces echoed with the bustle of preparing fleets, armies, and the implements of war. Nothing, however, was so vexatious as the raising of money. Machianus, with the perpetual assertion that money was the sinews of war, looked in all questions not to right or truth, but only to the extent of a man's fortune. Informations abounded, and all the richest men were fastened on for plunder. These intolerable oppressions, which yet found some excuse in the necessities of war, were continued even in peace. Vespasian himself, indeed, at the beginning of his reign, was not so bent on enforcing these iniquitous measures till, spoiled by prosperity and evil counsellors, he learned this policy and ventured to use it. Messianus contributed to the war even from his own purse, liberal with his private means, because he helped himself without scruple from the wealth of the state. The rest followed his example in contributing their money. Very few enjoyed the same license in reimbursing themselves. Meanwhile the operations of Vespasian were hastened by the zeal of the army of Illyricum, which had come over to his side. The third legion set the example to the other legions of Musia. These were the eighth and seventh, Claudius, who were possessed with a strong liking for Otho, though they had not been present at the battle of Bigirecum. They had advanced to Aquileia, and by roughly repulsing the messengers who brought the tidings of Otho's defeat, by tearing the collars which displayed the name of Vitellius, by finally seizing on the military chest and dividing it among themselves, had assumed a hostile attitude. Then they began to fear. Fear suggested a new thought, that acts might be made a merit of with Vespasian, which would have to be excused to Vitellius. Accordingly, the three legions of Musia sought by letter to win over the army of Pannonia, and prepared to use force if they refused. During this commotion, Aponius Saturnius, governor of Musia, ventured on a most atrocious act. He dispatched a centurion to murder Tertius Julianus, the legate of the seventh legion, to gratify a private pique which he concealed beneath the appearance of party zeal. Julianus, having discovered his danger and procured some guides who were acquainted with the country, fled through the pathless wastes of Mysia beyond Mount Hamus, nor did he afterwards take any part in the civil war. He set out to join Vespasian, but contrived to protect his journey by various pretexts, lingering or hastening on his way, according to the intelligence he received. 
In Pannonia, however, the thirteenth legion and the seventh, Galbus, which still retained their vexation and rage at the defeat of Bidriacum, joined Vespasian without hesitation, mainly under the influence of Primus Antonius. This man, though an offender against the law, and convicted of fraud in the reign of Nero, had, among the other calamities of war, recovered his rank as a senator. Having been appointed by Galba to command the seventh legion, he was commonly believed to have often written to Otho, offering the party his services as a general. Being slighted, however, by that prince, he found no employment during the war. When the fortunes of Vitellius began to totter, he attached himself to Vespasian, and brought a vast accession of strength to his party. He was brave in battle, ready of speech, dexterous in bringing odium upon other men, powerful amidst civil strife and rebellion, rapacious, prodigal, the worst of citizens in peace, but in war no contemptible ally. United by these means, the armies of Musia and Pannonia drew with them the soldiery of Dalmatia, though the consular legates took no part in the movement. Titus Ampius Flavianus was the governor of Pannonia, Poppius Silvanus of Dalmatia. They were both rich and advanced in years. The imperial procurator, however, was Cornelius Fuscus, a man in the prime of life and of illustrious birth. Though in early youth the desire of repose had led him to resign his senatorial rank, he afterwards put himself at the head of his colony in fighting for Galba, and by this service he obtained his procuratorship. Subsequently embracing the cause of Vespasian, he lent the movement the stimulus of a fiery zeal. Finding his pleasure not so much in the rewards of peril as in peril itself, to assured and long-acquired possession he preferred novelty, uncertainty, and risk. Accordingly, both he and Antonius strove to agitate and disturb wherever there was any weak point. Dispatches were sent to the 14th Legion in Britain and to the 1st in Spain, for both these legions had been on the side of Otho against Vitellius. Letters, too, were scattered through every part of Gaul, and in a moment a mighty war burst into flame, for the armies of Illyricum were already in open revolt, and the rest were waiting only the signal of success. While Vespasian and the generals of his party were thus occupied in the provinces, Vitellius was daily becoming more contemptible and indolent, halting to enjoy the pleasures of every town and villa in his way, as with his cumbrous host he advanced towards the capital. He was followed by sixty thousand armed soldiers demoralized by license. Still larger was the number of camp followers, and of all slaves the slaves of soldiers are the most unruly. So numerous a retinue of officers and personal friends would have been difficult to keep under restraint, even if controlled by the strictest discipline. The crowd was made more unwieldy by senators and knights who came to meet him from the capital, some moved by fear, many by a spirit of adulation, others, and by degrees all, that they might not be left behind while the rest were going. From the dregs of the people there thronged buffoons, players, and charioteers, known to Vitellius from their infamous compliance with his vices, for in such disgraceful friendships he felt a strange pleasure. And now not only were the colonies and towns exhausted by having to furnish supplies, but the very cultivator of the soil and his lands, on which the harvests were now ripe, were plundered like an enemy's territory. There were many sanguinary encounters between the soldiers. For ever since the mutiny which broke out at Ticinum, there had lingered a spirit of dissension between the legions and the auxiliary troops, though they could unite whenever they had to fight with a rustic population. The most terrible massacre took place at the seventh milestone from Rome. 
Vitellius was distributing to each soldier provisions ready-dressed on the same abundant scale as the gladiators' rations, and the populace had poured forth and spread themselves throughout the entire camp. Some with the frolicsome humour of slaves robbed the careless soldiers by slyly cutting their belts, and then asked them whether they were armed. Unused to insult, the spirit of the soldiers resented the jest. Sword in hand, they fell upon the unarmed people. Among the slain was the father of a soldier who was with his son. He was afterwards recognised, and his murder becoming generally known, they spared the innocent crowd. Yet there was a panic at Rome, as the soldiers pressed on in all directions. It was to the Forum that they chiefly directed their steps, anxious to behold the spot where Galba had fallen. Nor were the men themselves a less frightful spectacle, bristling as they were with the skins of wild beasts, and armed with huge lances, while in their strangeness to the place they were embarrassed by the crowds of people, or tumbling down in the slippery streets, or from the shock of some casual encounter they fell to quarrelling, and then had recourse to blows and the use of their swords. Besides, the tribunes and prefects were hurrying to and fro with formidable bodies of armed men. Vitellius himself, mounted on a splendid charger, with military cloak and sword, advanced from the Mulvian Bridge, driving the Senate and people before him, but, deterred by the advice of his friends from marching into Rome as if it were a captured city, he assumed a civil garb, and proceeded with his army in orderly array. The eagles of four legions were borne in front, and an equal number of colours from other legions on either side. Then came the standards of twelve auxiliary squadrons, and the cavalry behind the ranks of the infantry. Next came thirty-four auxiliary cohorts, distinguished according to the names or various equipments of the nations. Before each eagle were the prefects of the camp, the tribunes, and the centurions of highest rank, in white robes, and the other officers by the side of their respective companies, glittering with arms and decorations. The ornaments and chains of the soldiers presented a brilliant appearance. It was a glorious sight, and the army was worthy of a better emperor than Vitellius. Thus he entered the capital, and he there embraced his mother and honoured her with the title of Augusta. The next day, as if he were addressing the Senate and people of another state, he pronounced a high panegyric on himself, extolling his own energy and moderation, though his enormities were known to the very persons who were present, and to the whole of Italy, his progress through which had been disgraced by sloth and profligacy. Yet the mob, who had no patriotic anxieties, and who, without distinguishing between truth and falsehood, had learned the lesson of habitual flattery, applauded him with shouts and acclamations, and, reluctant as he was to assume the name of Augustus, extorted from him a compliance as idle as his previous refusal. The country, ready to find a meaning in every circumstance, regarded it as an omen of gloomy import that Vitellius, on obtaining the office of supreme pontiff, should have issued a proclamation concerning the public religious ceremonial on the 18th of July, a day which from old times the disasters of Crimea and Alia had marked as unlucky. Thus, utterly regardless of all law, human and divine, with freedmen and friends as reckless as himself, he lived as if he were among a set of drunkards. Still, at the consular elections, he was present in company with the candidates like an ordinary citizen, and by showing himself as a spectator in the theatre, as a partisan in the circus, he courted every breath of applause from the lowest rebel. Agreeable and popular as this conduct would have been, had it been prompted by noble qualities, it was looked upon as undignified and contemptible from the remembrance of his past life. He habitually appeared in the Senate even when unimportant matters were under discussion, 
and it once happened that Priscus Helvidius, the praetor-elect, had spoken against his wishes. Though at that moment provoked, he only called on the tribunes of the people to support his insulted authority, and then, when his friends, who feared his resentment was deeper than it appeared, sought to appease him, he replied that it was nothing strange that two senators in a commonwealth should disagree. He had himself been in the habit of opposing Thracia. Most of them laughed at the effrontery of such a comparison, though some were pleased at the very circumstance of his having selected, not one of the most influential men of the time, but Thracia, as his model of true glory. He had advanced to the command of the Praetorian Guard Publius Sabinus, a prefect of the cohort, and Julius Priscus, then only a centurion. It was through the influence of Cicina and Valens that they respectively rose to power. Though always at Verines, these two men left no authority to Vitellius. The functions of empire were discharged by Cicina and Valens. They had long before been led to suspect each other by animosities scarcely concealed amid the cares of the campaign and the camp, and aggravated by unprincipled friends in the state of society calculated to produce such feuds. In their struggles for popularity, in their long retinues, and in the vast crowds at their levies, they vied with each other and challenged comparison, while the favour of Vitellius inclined first to one and then to the other. There can never be complete confidence in a power which is excessive. Vitellius himself, who was ever varying between sudden irritation and unseasonable fondness, they at once despised and feared. Still, this had not made them less keen to seize on palaces and gardens and all the wealth of the empire, while a sad and needy throng of nobles, whom with their children Galba had restored to their country, received no relief from the compassion of the emperor. By an edict which gratified the leading men of the state, while it approved itself even to the populace, Vitellius gave back to the returned exiles their rights over their freedmen, although servile ingenuity sought in every way to neutralize the boon, concealing money in quarters which either obscurity or rank rendered secure. Some freedmen had made their way into the palace of the emperor, and thus became more powerful even than their patrons. Meanwhile, the soldiers, as their numbers overflowed the crowded camp, dispersed throughout the porticos, the temples, and the whole capital, did not know their own headquarters, kept no watch, and ceased to brace themselves by toil. Amidst the allurements of the city and all shameful excesses, they wasted their strength in idleness and their energies in riot. At last, reckless even of health, a large portion of them quartered themselves in the notoriously pestilential neighbourhood of the Vatican. Hence ensued a great mortality in the ranks. The Tiber was close at hand, and their extreme eagerness for the water and their impatience of the heat weakened the constitutions of the Germans and Gauls, always liable to disease. To make matters worse, the organization of the service was deranged by unprincipled intrigue and favor. Sixteen Praetorian and four city cohorts were being raised, each to consist of a thousand men. In this levy, Valens ventured to do more than his rival on the pretense of his having rescued Cicina himself from peril. Doubtless his arrival had restored the fortunes of the party, and his victory had reversed the unfavourable rumours occasioned by his tardy advance. The entire army, too, of Lower Germany was attached to him. This circumstance, it is thought, first made the allegiance of Cicina waver. Much, however, as Vitellius indulged his generals, his soldiers enjoyed yet greater license. Everyone chose his own service. However unfit, he might, if he preferred it, be enrolled among the soldiers of the capital. 
Soldiers, again, of good character were allowed, if they so wished, to remain with the legions or in the cavalry, and this was the choice of many who were worn out with the disease, or who shrank from the unhealthiness of the climate. But the main strength of the legions and cavalry was drafted from them, while the old glory of the Praetorian camp was destroyed by these twenty thousand men indiscriminately taken rather than chosen out of the whole army. While Vitellius was haranguing the troops, the men called out for the execution of Asiaticus and of Flavius and Rufinus, the Gallic chieftains, because they had fought for Vindex. He never checked these cries, for to say nothing of the cowardice natural to that feeble soul, he was aware that the distribution of a donative was imminent, and having no money, he lavished everything else on the soldiers. A contribution in the form of a tax was exacted from the freedmen of former emperors in proportion to the number of their slaves. Vitellius himself, thinking only how to squander, was building a stable for his charioteers, was filling the circus with shows of gladiators and wild beasts, and fooling away his money as if he had the most abundant supplies. Moreover, Cicina and Valens celebrated the birthday of Vitellius by exhibiting in every quarter of the city shows of gladiators on a vast and hitherto unparalleled scale. He pleased the most infamous characters, but utterly disgusted all the respectable citizens, by building altars in the campus Marcius, and performing funeral rites to Nero. Victims were slaughtered and burned in the name of the state. The pile was kindled by the Augustales, an order of the priesthood dedicated by the emperor Tiberius to the Julian family, just as Romulus had dedicated one to King Tasius. Within four months from the victory of Bijercum, Asiaticus, the emperor's freedman, was rivalling the Polycletae, the Petrobii, and all the old hateful names. No one sought promotion in that court by integrity or diligence. The sole road to power was to glut the insatiable appetites of Vitellius by prodigal entertainments, extravagance, and riot. The emperor himself, thinking it enough to enjoy the present, and without a thought for the future, is believed to have squandered nine hundred million sesterces in a very few months. Rome, as miserable as she was great, afflicted in one year by an Otho and a Vitellius, what with the Vinae, the Fabi, the Aesilae, and the Asiaticae, passed through all vicissitudes of infamy, till there came Eusianus and Marcellus, and different men rather than a different morality. The first revolt of which Vitellius received tidings was that of the Third Legion, dispatches having been sent by Aponius Saturninus before he too attached himself to the party of Vespasian. Aponius, however, agitated by the unexpected occurrence, had not written all the particulars, and flattering friends softened down its import. It was, they said, a mutiny of only a single legion. The loyalty of the other armies was unshaken. Vitellius, in addressing the soldiers, spoke to the same effect. He inveighed against the lately disbanded Praetorians, and asserted that false rumours were circulated by them, and that there was no fear of a civil war. The name of Vespasian he suppressed, and soldiers were dispersed through the city to check the popular gossip. This, more than anything else, kept these rumours alive. Nevertheless, Vitellius summoned auxiliary troops from Germany, Britain, and Spain, tardily, however, and with an attempt to conceal his necessities. The legates and the provinces were equally slow. Hordionius Flaccus, who was beginning to suspect the Batavians, feared that he should have a war on his own hands, and Vettius Bolanus had in Britain a province never very quiet, and both these officers were wavering in their allegiance. Spain, too, which then was without a governor of consular rank, showed no alacrity. 
the legates of the three legions, equal in authority, and ready, while Vitellius was prosperous, to vie in obedience, stood aloof with one consent from his falling fortunes. In Africa, the legion and the auxiliary infantry levied by Clodius Macer, and soon after disbanded by Galba, again entered the service at the order of Vitellius, while all the rest of the youth promptly gave in their names. Vitellius had ruled that province as proconsul with integrity and popularity. Vespasian's government had been infamous and odious. The allies formed conjectures accordingly as to the manner in which each would reign, but the result contradicted them. At first Valerius Festus, the legate, loyally seconded the zeal of the provincials. Soon he began to waver, supporting Vitellius in his public dispatches and edicts, Vespasian in his secret correspondence, and intending to hold by the one or the other according as they might succeed. Some soldiers and centurions, coming through Rhesia and Gaul, were seized with letters and edicts from Vespasian, and on being sent to Vitellius were put to death. More, however, eluded discovery escaping either through the faithful protection of friends or by their own tact. Thus the preparations of Vitellius became known, while the plans of Vespasian were for the most part kept secret. At first the supineness of Vitellius was in fault. Afterwards the occupation of the Pannonian Alps with troops stopped all intelligence. And on the sea the prevalent Etesian winds favoured an eastward voyage, but hindered all return. At length, Vitellius, appalled by the eruption of the enemy and by the menacing intelligence from every quarter, ordered Cicina and Valens to take the field. Cicina was sent on in advance. Valens, who was just recovering from his severe illness, was delayed by weakness. Far different was the appearance of the German army as it marched out of the capital. All strength had departed from their bodies, all energy from their spirits. Slowly and with thin ranks the column moved along, their weapons feebly grasped, their horses spiritless. The soldiers, impatient of the heat, the dust, and the weather, in proportion as they were less capable of enduring toil, were more ready for mutiny. All this was aggravated by the old vanity of Cicina, and by the indolence that had of late crept over him. Presuming on the excessive favour of fortune, he had abandoned himself to luxury. Perhaps he meditated perfidy, and it was part of his policy to enervate the courage of the army. Many believe that his fidelity had been shaken by the suggestions of Flavius Sabinus, who employed Rubrius Gallus as the bearer of communications, intimating that the conditions of desertion would be held binding by Vespasian. At the same time he was reminded of his hatred and jealousy of Fabius Valens. Being inferior to his rival in influence with Vitellius, he should seek to secure favour and power with the new emperor. Cicina, having embraced Vitellius and received tokens of high distinction, left him and sent a detachment of cavalry to occupy Cremona. It was followed by the veteran troops of the 4th, 10th, and 16th legions, by the 5th and 22nd legions, and the rear was brought up by the 21st, the Rapex, and the 1st Italian legion with the veteran troops of three British legions and a chosen body of auxiliaries. After the departure of Cicina, Valens sent a dispatch to the army which had been under his own command with directions that it should wait for him on the road. Such, he said, was his arrangement with Cicina. Cicina, however, being with the army in person, and consequently having greater influence, pretended that this plan had been changed, so that the gathering forces of the enemy might be met with their whole strength. Orders were therefore given to the legions to advance with all speed upon Cremona, while a portion of the force was to proceed to Hostilia. Cicina himself turned aside to Ravenna, on the pretext that he wished to address the fleet. 
Soon, however, he sought the retirement of Petavium, there to concert his treachery. Lucilius Bassus, who had been promoted by Vitellius from the command of a squadron of cavalry to be admiral of the fleets at Ravenna and Misenum, failing immediately to obtain the command of the Praetorian Guard, sought to gratify his unreasonable resentment by an atrocious act of perfidy. It cannot be certainly known whether he carried Cicina with him, or whether, as is often the case with bad men, that they are like each other, both were actuated by the same evil motives. The historians of the period, who, during the ascendancy of the Flavian family, composed the chronicles of this war, have, in the distorted representations of flattery, assigned as the motives of these men a regard for peace and a love of their country. For my own part, I believe that, to say nothing of a natural fickleness, and an honour which they must have held cheap after the betrayal of Galba. Feelings of rivalry and jealousy lest others should outstrip them in the favour of Vitellius made them accomplish his ruin. Cicena, having overtaken the legions, strove by every species of artifice to undermine the fidelity of the Saturians and soldiers who were devoted to Vitellius. Bassus, in making the same attempt, experienced less difficulty, for the fleet, remembering how recently it had served in the cause of Otho, was ready to change its allegiance. End of Book Two, Part Five.